welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I'm not sure how this episode of the podcast will actually play out. The threads of the narrative, such as I have a narrative, are disparate, but somehow I feel as if they will come together at some point. And if they don't, I guess that's okay too. I think I got a glimmer of how I will conclude when I was at Holy Cross Cemetery today, which was to pray for the souls of Monsignor Jeremiah Murphy, whose fifth anniversary of his death was about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, then also to Monsignor George Parnassus. We do this twice a year because both men were very adamant about the need to pray for souls who have passed away. One should never assume that someone is in heaven unless you know that the person was a saint and none of us really knows the interior of any human being completely. So we pray, assuming that most people go to purgatory who are otherwise basically good but need to have their souls become shining and new by the discipline of purgatory. So. Let's see where this goes. Some of you who know me personally and those few who listen regularly to this weekly indulgence of mine know that when I was in college, I did a poetry show on radio station WFUV, the Jesuit-founded Fordham University 50,000-watt radio station. When I was there, it was truly student-run with a single adult at the helm, the gruff, cigar-smoking, 20th-century radio man who founded his own station, still there also, WFAS, and his name was Frank A. Seitz. Sundays at the station had to be religious and or educational. There was a half-hour to fill in 1973, and I was lucky enough to fill it with a poetry program. I was a quick study, and the fact I didn't know anything about poetry didn't stop me. And admittedly, then, and even to this day, I am and was not crazy about most poetry, but I had the help of my erudite father to structure the program. My mother, who was diagnosed with cancer that very year, lived long enough to hear me for a number of early episodes. When she died in 1974, I dedicated a program to her short 48 years, and one of the poems I included on the program was one called Dirge Without Music by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Here's the poem. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is, and so it will be, for so it has been time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely. Crowned with lilies and with laurel they go, but I am not resigned. Lovers and thinkers into the earth with you, be one with the dull, the indiscriminate dust, a fragment of what you felt, of what you knew, a formula, a phrase remains, but the best is lost. The answers, quick and keen, the honest look, the laughter, the love, they are gone, they are gone to feed the roses. Elegant and curled is the blossom, Fragrant is the blossom. I know, but I do not approve. More precious was the light in your eyes than all the roses in the world. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave. Gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, 
the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. I can't remember, though somewhere I have a tape, as my father used to record my radio efforts, whether I read the poem as I just did now, or it was a record in Malay's own voice, which I used to use until I felt more confident reading poetry myself. But I remember it got to me then, and it gets to me right now in the stomach, but especially in the heart. That's what it feels like when someone you love dies. It makes you rebel. I note now that the poem never mentions God or eternity, but then to a daughter who had lost a mother at age 20, whether you are a believer in God or not, you just know it shouldn't happen. It is, I know, but it should not be, as Malay so profoundly says. That's how I felt when my mother died. She was a woman who had wanted much, unclear what exactly it was, but I know that she didn't feel that she got it and it seemed unfair that she was cut off in life so early and all chance was gone. And in those days, I wasn't practicing my faith. In fact, I remember being angry even during her Catholic funeral, which I am now glad she had, but which then I thought was incongruous as she hadn't practiced her faith in my memory. Albeit at the age of 20, my memory probably wasn't an appropriate measure for anything. Though Dirge Without Music didn't have an apparent, an explicit reference to God, I still somehow felt that it wasn't a nihilistic poem. When I read it now, I feel sorry for the young adult I was, flailing religiously, but somehow belief was there. It was dormant. I came back to it, but when I read the poem again, I feel that Malay is somehow talking about a struggle for belief in her rebellion in not being resigned to death. If there wasn't a sense of God in the poem, there certainly was a need for it, the battle for it, that goes on in the spinning of the world and in the recesses of our soul. I hadn't thought anything much about Edna St. Vincent Millay herself for years, though that poem has always stuck with me far more than any of her others, and it, I guess I'd call it a favorite, maybe because it strikes at my core maybe more so because my mother was the first person I lost in my life. But there have been so many since, and the poem speaks just as strongly as it did then. I was given a gift certificate to one of the few remaining brick-and-mortar bookstores near my parish. I have bought books in the last two COVID lockdown years, but only online. This was the first time I could go inside maskless, and I jumped at the chance. At first, I didn't see anything that shouted for a purchase, but then I noticed an expanded biography section, and on a shelf close to the floor was a book called Rapture and Melancholy, The Diaries of Edna St. Vincent Millay. The book next to it was one I had actually mostly read called The Assassin's Cloak, parts of journals of English writers and performers over the last century, the 20th century, and now I would learn about the life of the woman who wrote probably my most favorite poem during one of my periods of melancholy, and then I could also reacquaint myself with other of her poems. 
perhaps I had unconsciously thought that Malay was religious because of her name, Edna St. Vincent Malay. It turns out that part of her name was in homage to St. Vincent Hospital in New York, where an uncle of hers was taken care of and his life saved. Truthfully, it's hard to pin down Malay's actual beliefs, for or against God. Her earliest published poem, Renaissance, written when she was the age just about I was when my mother died, I think she was 19 when she wrote the poem, I was 20 when my mother died, would suggest a strong belief in God. It's a long poem. I won't read the whole thing. It's amazing a 19-year-old wrote it, and it was before she went to college. She couldn't go to college until she won a scholarship when she was about 21 because her family didn't have any money, and she was basically the person who took care of her siblings. Renaissance is a long poem, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. The basic premise is that she's standing in the middle of nature. She, she lived in Maine for part of her life, and she's looking out over these mountains and, I guess, some water, and she starts to consider life and death and spirituality and rebirth. Your sense would be, oh, this, this lady is struggling with the infinite, with religious themes. And she mentions God specifically in it, especially at the point towards the end of the poem when she's asking to be brought back to the world after being crushed by it and having died, essentially, in it. She says, Oh God, I cried, give me a new birth and put me back upon the earth. Upset each cloud's gigantic gourd and let the heavy rain downpoured in one big torrent set me free, washing my grave away from me. Malay was raised going to Sunday school, though I'm not sure exactly what her Christian denomination was. I know she had friends at the Young Women's Christian Association, but when she speaks of going to Sunday school or to church, she does so kind of cavalierly in her diaries. In other parts of her diary, she suggests a kind of haphazard tapestry of Christian belief, a kind of pantheism, which I suppose Renaissance has. And though she invokes God's name as if she is a kind of believer, she also disses him completely at one point, such that atheists even attach themselves to her. In that, she says, there is no God, but it does not matter. Man is enough. I don't know. I, I want some common ground with her, this long, late poet who struggles just as I do, but seems to be coming to whole other conclusions on the same set of facts, the same experience of of existence. Certainly my travels on life's road have been very different from hers. Hers was wild, then unconventional, sinful from any traditional religious view, but arguably now comfortably, or is it uncomfortably, mainstream. She was promiscuous while married with both sexes. She drank to excess. She had a cruel streak towards some people in her life. She became a drug addict because of treatments for health issues, and she truly did burn the candle she wrote about at both ends. And she died at age 58 of either falling down the stairs or of a heart attack that caused her to fall down the stairs at her home alone. Her home was called Steepletop because her husband, on whom she had cheated pretty much their entire marriage, had died a year before her in 1949. So, like me, an ordinary Catholic, Malay struggled with 
the realities of life with its unfairness, with its death, with its injury, with its contradictions. I feel in some ways we're sisters. She died four years before I was even born. I found myself thinking as I read her diary, which she would have been horrified to know anyone had done, and listened to her speak her own poems, whether we could have had we met, had she found me even slightly interesting, would we have spoken about religion, especially since so many of her poems sound as if she was seeking an answer? And despite the fact that at some point she seems to have abandoned thinking about him altogether, would we have, in a calm, reasonable way, discussed how we saw the world and how we saw spirituality, or didn't in her case, or did and then didn't? Would I talk about my days away from the faith and how I came back to it? Or would we, as is normally the case with people who do not share our points of view or our faith, and with some who reject our faith entirely, would we have ended up agreeing not to talk about religion as well as politics, which I'm guessing she and I would not have shared either? Would I thereby be hiding my theological light underneath a barrel, or would I have no choice but to do so in order to maintain peace? I told you a week or so ago that I've been engaged in an online and private, at the same time, Ignatian retreat. I listened to a talk from the priest who is conducting it, Father Ed Broom, and then each day I spend an hour with the material he's provided and the Bible and a notebook, the focus being discovering and or enhancing a relationship with God during this Lent, and especially in light of the troubling signs of prophecy seemingly being fulfilled and not the fun kind. The first brick of his retreat, of the Ignatian retreat, the foundation is right out of the catechism, that our purpose is to praise, revere, serve, obey God in this life so that we can be united with him for eternity in the next. Father Broom has said more than once that if we meditated on the four last things, death, judgment, hell and heaven, and in particular what an eternity in hell would look like. Eternity, which is a very long time, forever, if we really meditated on it and on our private judgment with our Lord where we'd basically rewind our lives right in front of him, if we meditated on all of this, that we'd all be converted. Reading about and of St. Vincent Millay kind of was like a lightning rod for my thinking about this. If I had been in a position to know her and to have had conversations with her, and if I were to have said to the worldly wise Edna St. Vincent Millay at the height of her success, or frankly even to the people in my condo building, they would be tolerant currently, because we are, however, seeing intolerance societally, and they would be kindly patronizing and talk of their being spiritual, kind of like the pantheistic phase that Malay herself reflected, or the pantheistic amid the confusion, we would, even though we have the common ground of, of struggle, we would have no common ground that it seems I could lead them to a meditation on heaven and hell, 
I mean, as I said, Edna ultimately said there was no God and that there was only man. Did she really believe that? Could she be reeled back from it? She was changeable, manic in life and in spirituality, probably, so who knows? But I know people, lots of people, anyone basically outside of my parish of Catholic believers or quasi-believers who won't or wouldn't or don't accept the very first critical premise of, of my retreat that I'm on. That is, that I'm here to serve and love God so I can be with him in paradise forever. Here's a variation of that foundational principle upon which one meditates on God and having a true intimate friendship with him in all three persons. This is from Robert Hugh Benson, a convert from Anglicanism around the time of more famous souls who converted like Newman and Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's from a book of his sermons and how the soul must be purged to have this real friendship with God. He said that the object of religion is that the soul should serve God, not that God should serve the soul. Which begs the question about why lots of people don't follow the object of religion because that's what they would have to do. And most of us, inclining as we do towards concupiscence, don't want to serve or even acknowledge a creator. Maybe Edna St. Vincent Millay wouldn't have laughed coquettishly. She was considered quite a beauty and had great charm, and that she wouldn't have simply pushed me away laughingly and suggested a glass of champagne that we enjoy the wildlife, especially the birds around her country home, rather than to discuss such elusive things. Why? Maybe she wouldn't laugh, because there are those poems, as I've already said, which suggest that she was drawn to the someone with a capital S that she otherwise stumbled over and even denied in her diaries. Here's another poem that I don't really remember, but if I hadn't read anything about Edna St. Vincent Millay, I would say, oh, here's a believer. It's called God's World, a world. I cannot hold thee close enough. Thy winds, thy wide gray skies, thy mists that roll and rise, thy woods this autumn day that ache and sag and all but cry with color, that gaunt crag to crush, to lift the lean of that black bluff. World, world, I cannot get thee close enough. Long have I known a glory in it all, but never knew I this. Here such a passion is as stretcheth me apart. Lord, I do fear thou mayst the world too beautiful this year. My soul is all but out of me. Let fall no burning leaf. Prithee, let no bird call. I suppose you could say that she's like most of us, is that we look at God as what Dennis Prager calls a celestial butler, that we see him giving to us, but we do not see ourselves owing anything to him and we just want things from him, especially good luck. What I'm doing in my retreat is taking a different step or maybe a further step is enjoying what he's already given to me, the beauty of the world, for example, but that I have an obligation for reciprocity, that the good I see is a taste of the paradise that we lost and that the suffering part that I don't want to deal with, that none of us wants to deal with, contains the key. 
key is the suffering key. How do I, as a Catholic, bridge the chasm between belief and a lack of belief? If you don't believe in God, then serving God is not an issue for you. And I suppose what you're doing is you're looking to fate to serve you, which of course it can't. So now either you give in or you make yourself your own God. If someone by happenstance might come up to me and say, why are you here? Not why I'm in this room, but why am I here in cosmic ways? I have to say, well, I, as a Catholic, am here to serve God in this life so I can be with him in the next, which includes an understanding of the transformed nature of suffering. I think that person would look at me like I'm speaking a whole other language and one in which, quite frankly, I'm tongue-tied. And worse, do we, as Catholics, as a group, as a set of purported believers, do we understand that that is the purpose of our existence, that that is the principle from which all other things are derived. As usual, I don't really have an answer to my own question. I have thoughts about it, really just two. The first is that, in fact, I have to be visibly and unreservedly Catholic in my engagement with the world and not ashamed of it. I have to be willing to look like I have three heads if I were to say that I believe my purpose here is to obey, praise, serve God in this life so that I may be with him in the next forever, some people might ask a question and I will stumble to try to give an answer in some reasonable religious way. And two, I have to become really habitual in prayer because ultimately Anything I do comes from the grace of God to the extent that I might have any influence over someone else. It's only because of God's wish in that matter, God's direction, God's guidance to me. I said that uh, when I was at the cemetery today, I was talking a little bit about my proposed podcast today and not really having an ending for it. And my friend, one of my friends who's active, as a Catholic, reminded me of folks like Augustine, who was leading a salacious life that was probably leading to hell, but his mother never gave up in prayer. And that, because of God's grace, because of his transformative way with us human beings, things can change. And someone who is completely anti-faith can become the most heroic example of the faith. It's a part of another aspect of Christian devotion and Christian fidelity, and that is to let it go and leave it to God, having done that which he requires of us, to obey, to listen, to serve, and to pray. Something brings me back to Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem, Dirge Without Music, as you recall, she says at the very end of the poem about death, she says, I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. One could say that neither was God resigned, that his creation should be lost forever to eternity, to heaven, to paradise. He did not resign to the death that came into the world by our covetous hands. And he did something about it, something we could not do for ourselves. He bore a door between death and eternity. 
So maybe nobody seems to be listening to me when I talk about the purpose of life, the foundational principle of serving God here in the now in order to be with him forever in the heavenly future or the heavenly timelessness. But it's my job as a Catholic Christian to put it out there and remember that he is God and I am not. So ends another episode of our podcast, Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Hope you've enjoyed yourself. I have enjoyed talking to you, albeit in a sort of circuitous way. But then that's kind of how my mind works. See you next week.